to some degree, our exposure to infections, infectious agents, helps our immune system distinguish self from other. So I like to explain it this way. So our immune system is like a bunch of teenage boys without oversight. If you have a bunch of teenage boys and they have a coach and they're, you know, playing basketball or playing soccer, they tend to behave. But you leave a bunch of teenage boys and any woman who has kids or has been around kids knows you leave a bunch of teenage boys unattended. They are going to destroy something and tear something up. Welcome to This Functional Life, a show for women just like you who are ready for more health, vitality, passion, purpose. We're going to deconstruct norms, uncover your deepest desires, harness your physical and mental health, and peel back the layers to uncover exactly what you want out of life. I'm your host, Betty Murray, part geek, part magician, and your new medical bestie with a dash of sass. I love taking complex science and making it easy to understand and integrate into daily life. Join the journey to make this chapter the best ever. Let's get thriving. Welcome back to This Functional Life. So we're going to continue on on our journey of the causes and the root cause for autoimmunity. And so today I want to talk about viral infection, parasitic infection, and bacterial infection. And, you know, we've already covered in the very early episodes of the autoimmune series about our commensal bacteria and leaky gut or intestinal permeability and our microbiome and its, its interrelated activity with uh, autoimmunity. But today, what I really want to focus on is the infectious environment. So things like Epstein-Barr virus, cytomegalovirus, the influenza virus, COVID, all those other viruses that we know, the herpes simplex family. And so I want to give some context about uh, what really happens here early on. And I believe I may have talked about this um, in one of the episodes, but there is this hygiene hypothesis. The hygiene hypothesis says that part of the reason why we see autoimmunity, which is a predominantly westernized disease, is because our environment and our bodies and everything else have become overly sanitized. So what does that mean? So if you were to go look in places that are not highly westernized, let's say sub-Sahara Africa, um, you look in the slums of Bangladesh where sanitation may be questionable in some areas and infection rates are much higher. Any kind of infection from, you know, things like tuberculosis all the way down to having parasites, we see a significant decrease in the incidence of autoimmunity. However, when you come to the United States or Europe, you see this extraordinary uptick in autoimmune conditions. So the hygiene hypothesis is not something that's like, could this possibly be? It is definitely a part of this process. There's, you just can't, that looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it is a duck, right? So the fact that we have cleaned our environment is fabulous, right? You know, it, my husband's a firefighter and paramedic. So you can imagine that his exposure to just stuff, you know, as a paramedic, is a lot. And so he was a self-professed germaphobe before being germaphobe was cool during COVID. You know, even just keeping your environment clean, there's keeping it clean and then there's sanitizing it to the extent that you're probably wiping out things like commensal bacteria in your environment, in your home, on your body that actually is protective. So in the hygiene hypothesis, one of the things that we understand is that infections in some ways 
helps our immune system learn. So when we're born, we have a very, very minute part of our immune system that we're born with, the innate part of our immune system. And part of the reason why babies and small children get fevers so extensively, and as you get older, usually that fever response sort of attenuates, is because that's one of the significant innate immune responses to infection. Right. So that's like their only defense because their body hasn't had exposure. So again, our immune system gets exposed to things like viruses, bacteria, parasites, and then it launches a response. And in, if you haven't listened to my um, previous discussion about stress and its interplay, I did a, lo- a at least a little voiceover, a little piece of what's really happening with those different sides of the immune system. So I don't want to cover that today. Um, So go back and listen to that if you want to understand how the innate and the adaptive immune system sort of interplay and how they play with autoimmunity. So, you know, so to some degree, our exposure to infections, infectious agents, helps our immune system distinguish self from other. So I like to explain it this way. So our immune system is like a bunch of teenage boys without oversight. If you have a bunch of teenage boys and they have a coach and they're, you know, playing basketball or playing soccer, they tend to behave. But you leave a bunch of teenage boys and any woman who has kids or has been around kids knows you leave a bunch of teenage boys unattended. They are going to destroy something and tear something up. <laughs> just period. It's it's part of the growing process. We love them just so much in it. But the truth is our immune system must learn. And the lack of exposure may also be a problem. But The other problem is, is we get exposure to other things with a naive immune system. So I'm going to cover a little bit of that, that, that research, and we're going to talk a little bit about the mechanism so you can understand it. So our, our cells, our immune presenting cells have receptors on them called toll-like receptors. We have a bunch of different type of receptors. Just know that, think of that as a keyhole on our immune cells that turn on different mechanisms. And we have these things called PAMPs and DAMPs. And PAMPs are pathogen-associated molecular patterns. And DAMPs are damage-associated molecular patterns. And these are these are receptor activities that click onto the cell that sort of recognize, hey, whew, there's pathogens here. Or, hey, I've got cellular debris damage, you know, destroyed cells that are falling apart that I need to respond to. And these are part of the mechanism that that launches an immune response inside the body, but they also play a mechanism in autoimmunity. So sometimes it's the, it's the misalignment of these PAMP and DAMP receptors and the action that's happening. And so our immune cells have those receptors. So know that they have a bunch of keyholes for these different patterns of either destruction of cells or pathogens. And part of it is the signaling to these immune cells to sort of freak out. So What's really happening? So when we get infected with something, let's say it's Epstein-Barr, which causes mono, or it's cytomegalovirus, or the influenza virus, uh, COVID, um, you name it, the herpes virus, you know, there's several different herpes family, everything from cold sore to, um, to other, other nether regions, uh, herpes viruses. We have a, a several different mechanisms that we understand that really is where the immune system, the first mechanism is it sees this pathogen this virus, or, you know, in some cases, bacterial viruses, like, you know, and at the bacterial viruses, not that bacteria, bacteria too, where the immune system says, oh my gosh, I need to get rid of you. Antigen presenting cell, remember the doorman, the doorman sees the virus or the bacteria 
And it says, okay, you don't belong. I'm going to make antibodies to you. We're going to start attacking. So we get this sort of interplay between the immune system that starts the response and then the antibody production system. So that's a normal response. That's how your immune system is supposed to work. Now, when it starts to go awry, when it goes after these infections, it's through several different mechanisms. And so one is this crossed reactivity. So the crossed reactivity can come from things like molecular mimicry. So I want you to think of molecular mimicry as friendly fire. So molecular mimicry occurs when the body sees this infection, says, okay, I need to go kill this, right? So I need to go kill whatever it is, this bacteria or the virus that's invading a cell to go make more of itself. And it makes antibodies and it makes all these different cells to go attack it. And when that happens, molecular mimicry is the incident where the they're attacking and firing. So they're shooting at this infection and they mistake self for other. So, you know, we have many, many occasions in many, many wars that we have documented that we have accidentally killed our own soldiers through friendly fire. So molecular mimicry is friendly fire. And th that is at play in every autoimmune condition. There is some piece of molecular mimicry and foods can, can trigger it, food antibodies, um, toxins can, can trigger molecular mimicry, and obviously infection can do that. Then we have this thing called epitope spread, epitope spreading. So think of epitope spreading as we have this attack going on. So now I've got a fire. So I've got a house on fire and it's burning, 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 and it's a wood house. And there's some embers that, that trickle off the, that house and get carried by the wind over to the next house. And then that starts, you know, it starts smoldering and smoldering and smoldering. And lo and behold, if the fire department doesn't get there fast enough to put out the fire, that next house is now on fire. So epitope spread is this sort of inflammatory response, this immune response against the, against the presenting infection that sort of spreads along other activity. And then we also have what they call bystander activation. So bystander activation is basically mob violence. So I'm sure you have been somewhere in your life and, and you have maybe, I don't know, marched sometime about something you felt very strongly about. Or maybe you were watching something on TV and, and you see this interaction, this interaction, maybe it's between individuals or groups of indiv individuals and it's highly, highly charged and there's fighting that breaks out. And all of a sudden you get mad, you jump up, you start yelling or you join the fray. That's bystander activation, right? So bystander activation means somebody that was completely not involved in the original problem becomes part of the problem or becomes part of the fight. And then viruses in particular also do a little, a little fun play on the immune system where they actually immortalize B cells. So what is an immortalized B cell? So the B cell is one of the cells that gets developed against the infection, goes to attack it, and it gets immortalized. So that B cell becomes a terminator. You can't kill it. It just keeps replicating and activating and activating and activating. So infections can, can do this activity and turn the body from self loving to self-hating in different parts, just through the triggering of those mechanisms, right? So, so how does this happen? So let's talk a little bit about the bacterial side of this first. So bacteria uh, infect, right? Infect your body. They're circulating around the bloodstream. They're out in what they call the extracellular activity and, and they, start, um, they start replicating, right? And so part of what makes us sick from bacterial infections is just the sheer volume of infection. Um, so we have bacterial antigens that are outside the nucleus of the cell. 
And then we have antigens that can get inside the cell, like viral antigens. And when there's cellular damage happening, both from the bacteria itself, so the bacteria damage, like bacteria getting killed by our immune system, and the damage to our own cells stimulate those PAMPs and DAMPs, right? So we have receptors that are looking for that, and I have bacterial you know, pathogens that are, that are stimulating that, that, um, that pattern recognizing pathogen pattern recognizing receptor. And then the cells that are getting damaged are, are stimulating that damp activity. And, and in that activity, we have this, all this cellular debris, RNA specifically that ends up out in the bloodstream. And that starts to trigger one of those four mechanisms, bystander, molecular mimicry, epitope spreading or cross reactivity. And so that RNA, which RNA is, is your <laughs> nucleus inside your, <laughs> your, uh, mitochondria. So you have DNA damage and RNA damage coming out of a cell that just gets busted open. Think of it as kind of like the egg broke open and all the stuff is falling out of it, pouring out of it. And all of that ends up out into the extracellular matrix, which is the area in the cell and then out inside your bloodstream and it triggers the immune system. And when we see that, it becomes basically your body. That's where the body starts to make these sort of errors in judgment and um, and attack body parts. And specifically, we see this in, in your um, anti-double-stranded DNA, autoimmune diseases, lupus. Um, so we see this sort of stimulation. Now, bacteria in particular also make biofilms. And we talked a little bit about this when I talked about the microbiome. And how it plays a role in autoimmunity, but in case I didn't cover it enough or you didn't get a chance to hear about it. So bacteria make biofilms. Well, lots of things make biofilms. So your infectious stuff and your good stuff make biofilms. So what a biofilm is, is think of that as a bacterial castle. So on mucous membranes inside the mouth, matter of fact, a lot of the pathogenic um, biofilms in the mouth are just terrible. But inside the gut, everywhere on your skin, we have biofilms. So bacteria of the same type make these biofilms. So they start building a castle. They reinforce that castle with a moat and several walls. And the longer that biofilm is there, the more pathogenic that biofilm becomes, the more capable it is of developing a defense mechanism to keep the bacteria inside the castle safe, but also stimulate the immune system. So for instance, um, 80% of of infections are bacterial infections in particular are associated with biofilm activity and actually um i was speaking with a friend of mine several years ago that was working on biofilm disrupting medications and uh the the discovery of them and one of the things he said was that the department of defense um, was spending actually a lot of money and a lot of effort trying to help this process along because our medical uh surgical capacity even in the field in war is very effective, right? We can, we can salvage a limb, all these things that people died from years ago because we didn't have the technology to, you know, keep a poor person that may have been hit by, you know, a IED or anything like that. They would die from their injuries. Well, today, a lot of the death that happens is often from the infection that ensues right after that injury because of rapid development of biofilm. So that means basically just infection is rapid and it's the infection that kills the person, not the actual injury. And so when we look at biofilms, you know, the problem is is biofilms in themselves can be immune stimulatory and biofilms, especially because inside that castle, just like anything else. So think about the castle 
a let's say the castle has a bunch of bacteria in it and an infection goes through that bacteria, right? Or we have a bunch of bombing coming from our immune system that's bombing the uh, the castle. And so a wall gets knocked down, a spire gets knocked down. There's a whole bunch of bacteria that get damaged in the process. So you've got all this damaged DNA from the bacteria. And, and then you have all this extra, basically extracellular um, bacterial DNA that's now like in the castle, pouring out into the moat, pouring out into the body. And it is even that. So, so part of the stimulating activity of infections, particularly bacterial biofilms and bacteria, is the damage that happens to you from the attack itself on the body trying to fight the bacterial infection, the damage that happens to the biofilm, and then all of the dead bacteria that are in that biofilm getting exposure to the immune system, stimulating the heck out of the immune system and causing damage. Um, and this causes things like endotoxemia, um, which is toxicity inside the body because of endogenous things, meaning the infection. Um, you know, sepsis is one of those things that that is is well known, you know, that is truly an infection of bacteria and their death is causing a potential death for us. So those biofilms can absolutely play a role. And it's assumed that, you know, 55% of the people with lupus are probably getting triggered by some of this triggering of infections and other things and this sort of play back and forth between the infectious component and and the um, immune system. Also, in the biofilms and in bacteria, they have these things called curly amyloids, which actually bind to the DNA. And it makes it immunogenic. So it binds to damaged DNA, it binds to cellular DNA, and it makes our own DNA more uh, immunogenic, so more immune-stimulating. And so it's it, it then, so the DNA itself, these curly amyloids that are on the bacteria... They bind together and make a, a complex. So it's, it's basically this immune complex stimulating activity, which radically increases the, the innate immune system. So it triggers this onset of the innate immune system, cellular immune system response to rapidly increase. So the innate immune system, again, is that cellular response to infection. Okay. So. So bacterial infections can trigger it and absolutely viral infections can trigger it. So if we look at viruses, we know that viruses invade the cell. So I'm going to use COVID because COVID gave us a great opportunity for people to learn viral science. Some of it, but not all of it, because we were mis uh, misinforming the population on what it means to get a viral infection and, and how does the body naturally fight virus. But viruses invade a cell and basically get in there and start creating a factory to make more viruses to go inv invade more cells. So they actually enter into the cell itself and cause damage to the DNA, RNA, and other things, depending on what virus and what's really happening. So viruses enter in the cell and they start to cause damage inside that cell and then, and then they replicate themselves and they basically take over the cells. So when we look at the, the activity, viruses trigger all of this stuff inside the cell. So a lot of your autoimmune conditions that are associated with uh, innate immune system response are obviously going to be a potential place where viruses can play a role. So for instance, Epstein-Barr virus has been found to, in, in studies, I'm not making this up, to be related to Hashimoto's in, um, onset uh, lupus family diseases. Uh, we even have uh, viral infections possibly playing a role in celiac, uh, definitely multiple sclerosis. And so, so when that stuff occurs, we have this 
when that infectious activity occurs with a virus, we have a high potential for the body to respond to that viral infection in a way that may not be um, ideal. Now, of course, we've talked a little bit about this, and I'm leaving it actually till the end to talk about the genetics because it's uh, genetics leave us at a greater risk. But if genetics were truly 100% the cause, then we would have seen a massive amount of autoimmunity, you know, hundreds of years ago, and we probably never would have made it to this point. So it is it is these environmental factors that make a difference. So let's talk a little bit about some of the interesting stuff that uh, that we also know is so. Like I said, virus infections cause this immortalization of B cells, right? So all of a sudden, you've got this Terminator B cell that just won't die. So it just keeps fighting and fighting and fighting. And if that Terminator B cell is something that was turned on through molecular mimicry against something in your body, then you've got a major problem. Um, what's interesting, if you look at some of the, um, the infectious activity of viruses, too, you know, we have this innate immune system, which is your cellular response. You know, the inside the cell, fight for itself, protect the cell. And then you have the adaptive immune response, you know, so that inside the cell response is what they call Th1. Outside the cell response is Th2. And a lot of your viral infections, because of the damage they're causing to a cell itself, can shift the balance from this higher Th1 activity to a higher Th2 activity. So, so depending on what's really happening, you get this shifting between these two sides of the immune system. Um, so here's some, some interesting things that lead me back to that hygiene hypothesis. So if viral infections and bacterial infections and parasitic infections, which I'm going to talk about in a second, are so damaging and so causative to autoimmunity, then how could the hygiene hypothesis play out? Because, you know, hundreds of years ago, we didn't have good water sanitation and people died from ex infections at incredible rates, right? You know? You know, outside of old age, which was very early, like in the 50s <laughs> or 40s, if you go back just to, you know, the Civil War, infection was the other major cause. So if infections killed us back then and autoimmunity was relatively unknown, then what's really going on? So it's this double-edged sword of infection. So if you look particularly at some of the herpes family, and I'm not going to go into the individual herpes, uh, herpes, uh, infections, whether it's, you know, the, the genital or the, you know, herpes, uh, infections that you get elsewhere. What we know is herpes infections in to some degree seem to also be protective. So it's this dance between enough and not too much. So we need early exposure, particularly um, when we're young, probably with really robust immune systems to a host of infections to help the body learn what is the difference between self and, self and others. So the immune system teenage boys need to go to school and constantly get <laughs> reprimanded and redirected to get their homework done. So, so viral infections at appropriate times with an immune system that knows how to respond helps the immune system learn the difference between self and other. I'll give another example. It is well known and, and well studied in the literature that children who grow up on farms where they have exposure to farm animals in particular have a lower incidence of allergy, atopy, which are things like dermatitis, psoriasis, eczema, and overall autoimmune conditions are a little bit lower. Most of the research was really done in that allergy, asthma, atopy world. But so 
you know what those kids were doing. They were mucking out barns and they were picking up chickens and playing with manure. They were doing stuff that exposed them to a ton more bacteria and a ton more infectious activity. So there's this double-edged sword of getting an appropriate infection and then getting the wrong one. And so, so we have that exa- definitely in the herpes family. There's some research looking at uh, celiac disease in particular, and they found that some of the bacteria, commensal bacteria in our gut, actually go through their own metabolism of gluten that actually render it less immunostimulative. So maybe it's the loss of that commensal bacteria or the engagement of a new uh, bacteria into the gut that doesn't really belong there, like Proteus mirabilis, that all of a sudden sort of trigger this allergenicity to the gluten molecule and trigger the the uh, the gene to turn on and then turn on the disease itself. This isn't a question of could this happen? The research shows it happens. It's not true in everybody because, again, it's not just a one-to-one relationship. If it was a single bullet, it'd be awesome. It would make everybody's job really easy. But it is definitely one of the mechanisms. And so... So when we look at it, we know that those infections actually play a role. So the next question becomes, do parasites play a role here? So what's really interesting is this is another one of those double-edged swords. So if I'm in areas with low sanitation activity, right, access to clean water and foods is probably a little bit limited. Access to medical activity is even less. Guess what I'm going to probably have? I'm going to probably have some parasites in my gut. I may have parasites in different places of my body. And so in some cases, parasites can be protective against autoimmunity. So, and in some cases, they aren't. Because you got to remember parasites, there's millions of different parasites, just like there's millions of different viruses. And the ones that we've identified are the ones that we know are highly pathogenic within our native environment. So we have certain parasites that we see in the United States, like Giardia or Blastocystis harmonis. There's, there's some that are common to our area. Then if you go to the Amazon, there are common parasites there. If you go to India, there are common parasites there. And actually, I remember I spent um, part of a summer in 2006 in India, and one of our one of our instructions when we were there was if you get anything that looks digestive in nature, you get a sample of your stool and you go to the hospital here and you have them look at it. Because if you make it back to the United States, the likelihood of U.S. being able to identify what it is is somewhat limited just because we have a different set of parasites. We have a different level of sanitation here than if you're traveling all over India, you know. And so so parasites can be triggering because we have some parasites that can enter cells. We have parasites that enter, you know, different organs like the liver, like liver flukes. We have some that are intestinal. So absolutely, can they initiate the PAMP and DAMP response? Can they cause molecular mimicry to happen or bystander activation or molecular mimicry or cross-reactivity? For sure. So there's probably a significant amount of that that's happening. Um, and I would say the hard part in, in really figuring that out is being able to identify exactly which ones. But here's where it gets really interesting. So helmet worms, which my, <laughs> which nobody likes talking about. Yes, they're intestinal worms and, um, and there's lots of different ones and they're unfortunately very common infections in places without sanitization. Um, so helmet worms, which most Americans especially are like, Oh my God, that's disgusting. You're talking about butt worms. <laughs> and so, and so, yes, I am talking about worms that you get <laughs> intestinally. Um, 
when we look at research, uh, we have found that in celiac disease, in lupus, in MS, in many, many autoimmune conditions, they've tested rheumatoid arthritis, that if you introduce helmet worms to the intestines, that you see a cessation of autoimmune activity. So all of that friendly fire bystander, all that stuff stops. The immune system goes, what? Oh, I got worms. I know what I need to do there. Right. So for millions of years, we've had intestinal worms. We have maybe not a symbiotic relationship, but a likely relationship with these things. And our immune system is very well adapted to fight them when it's been trained appropriately. So one of the mechanisms is we believe it's this, this, it's just this, the immune system now has a coach, right? So I've got my teenage boys, my immune system, you know, may, may or may not be that well adapted. So my teenage boys are, you know, maybe doing well, but they might be tearing up stuff here and there. When you introduce this worm, which is the 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 team, the offending team on the other side, that's well-known, you know, well-known rival, all of a sudden things click in. It's like, we're going to fight and we're going to fight appropriately and we're going to win. And so instead of beating each other up, they start beating up the other team. And so these helmet worms have shown to be effective and, and they have done everything from taking worms and infecting people with worms, making worm pills, using pig whipworm, which is a worm that we would not survive in the human digestive tract, but can hang out for a couple of weeks and have replicated these studies over and over again. There's actually a group in Israel that was testing a drug. And I want to say they're in phase two or phase three clinical trials that um, sort of mimics this response and allows the immune systems to sort of stop attacking without being immunosuppressive. I can't wait for that to come out because that's going to be a game changer in the autoimmune world. So, so interestingly enough, some parasites, particularly those that are not helmuth worms, are triggers. And I have some friends, and I've had some friends on this show, that know for sure they've had multiple parasitic infections and that they were diagnosed with autoimmune conditions right on the heels of that activity. So, so parasites can trigger that as well. So ultimately, what it really means is that when we have these infections, there's a double-edged sword. And what we have to look at is that there is an amount of exposure to bacteria, viruses, and probably parasites that our immune system needs to go through for it to intelligently learn how to fight back and when to fight back and with what. However, a lot of these other infections like Epstein-Barr virus, um, H1N1, COVID, um, cytomegalovirus, your... um, Overgrowth of even UTIs. Like if you have, if you've had u- chronic UTIs, you know, chronic bacterial vaginosis, all those have some relationship with the onset of autoimmunity. So it's this overgrowth of potentially damaging bacteria and or overgrowth of even commensal bacteria that cause this sort of mixed relationship with the immune system, either triggering that cross reactivity or the epitope spread, which is that fire embers kind of blazing over and starting another fire next door, that bystander activation, which is a mob violence response where you just get activated and it's not even your fight, but now it's become your fight. And then that molecular mimicry, which is friendly fire. And it really is through those mechanisms. And and we have to look at that. So when you look back, if you've been diagnosed with an autoimmune condition, you can start looking at it and going, okay, you know, did, you know, am I female? Am I hormonal? Do I, did I have a lot of toxin exposure? Yes or no. Was I stressed out? Probably. 
you know, do I do I have a leaky gut or digestive tract problem and or do I have dysbiosis in my gut? Probably for sure. And it may be because I have a virus, a bacterial or a parasitic infection that may be driving all of that that cause a dysbiosis in the gut and then the intestinal permeability that then cause the immune system to go awry. So it's often it's often a, a series of things. And when I talked about the stress response and stress's role in autoimmunity, it's that bucket. You know, I have a bucket that ev- some of us have a gigantic bucket threshold. Some of us have a little bitty bucket threshold. But we have all these different faucets, the, you know, viruses, the infections, the the dysbiosis, the leaky gut, and each one's a little faucet. And, and if all of them are trickling a little bit and just one of them gets turned on a lot, the bucket's going to fill. But if I have two or three that trigger very close together, then that bucket's going to fill very rapidly. And so and so, this is one of the mechanisms that often gets overlooked because, again, conventional medicine goes, well, you know, you've got antibodies, you know, whatever they're checking for. you got antibodies, they're causing damage, so we just need to suppress your immune system and then we don't have to worry about it, right? So we'll just suppress whatever immune side of the body is attacking your body part and then we'll be fine. But then, of course, that leaves you at a greater risk for other infections. So, for example, lupus, uh, 55% of people who die with lupus die because of infectious activity, and it's probably because their immune system has been suppressed. So, that was from a study that came out in 2021. So, so the problem is, is our way to treat autoimmunity, although conventionally um, may work in a lot of ways, and sometimes you have to pull out the big guns, you know, obviously you know, in, in my clinic, we do everything we can to get to root cause, but sometimes you have to whip out the big guns because there's a lot of fight going on. But those big guns don't necessarily fix the underlying problem, right? They just cover it up. They mask it and suppress it. So if you look back at your health or you look forward to what you can do about viral or bacterial infections and possibly mitigate some of the triggering of your immune system response, particularly if you've got some genetic predisposition you know, the the thing is, it's about making your immune system be healthy, right? So what does that mean? So it means all the lifestyle stuff. So it's controlling stress, getting enough sleep, eating appropriately, getting nutrients like zinc and vitamin C, making sure that your body's getting the things that it needs so it can launch the appropriate response. And I'd also look at it and say, you know, look at all the toxins you have in your environment that you use to clean stuff with. I mean, one of the things that I am more worried about now post-COVID is just the absolute overuse of toxic chemicals. I mean, you watch the, the you know, the videos from China where they're like spraying toxins into the air like it's going to do something. And, and you look at it, you go, okay, great, wonderful. We're killing off a bunch of facultative microbiome in our environment that's probably going to cause us to have problems later on. So getting rid of the toxins, you don't need to hand sanitize every 15 seconds every time you touch something. You know, it's, it really is, you need your immune system to learn. Do not let it be a teenage, a group of teenage boys without oversight. Um, the other side is making sure you eat appropriately, getting all the right nutrients, you know, getting enough water, helping your body function. And then if you happen to be a woman who has children or, you know, most of, a lot of the women listening are probably almost, you know, if they're not empty nesters, they're pretty close to it. Um, but you may have grandchildren also. It's, you know, it's also making sure that they get exposure. So I'm like, you know, let them pet the dog, let them lick the dog, 
You know, let them lick the floor, let them touch things that are that you would consider gross and disgusting, because, again, their immune system is going to be able to respond pretty, pretty easily. And it's going to learn very rapidly what it needs to to learn. And so getting that exposure, play in the dirt, take your shoes off, walk in the dirt, ground on the planet Earth with your feet in the grass, get those daily exposures to the other things, be out in nature in the forest and get exposure to all the little bacteria, fungi, and other things that happen to be in our environment. Because again, that helps our body learn what it needs to know. Wow. So I covered quite a bit today about infections and its role in autoimmunity and the different mechanisms. And now you can um, surprise and delight your friends and family with your knowledge of infection. And so I hope you found this helpful. And if you did, you know, please leave me some feedback. If you loved it, I'd love to hear it. If you say, well, it was all right. I'd love to hear that too. And if you think somebody else may benefit from hearing this show, please share it with friends. Uh, give me a little bit of feedback, stars, good, bad, or indifferent. I, I love to hear from that. And also let me know if you uh, want to hear other topics. You can absolutely let me know that as well. And I really enjoyed sharing this information. And next week, we're going to move on to the next little subsection of autoimmunity. Thank you so much for tuning into this functional life. You are why I'm here. And I am so very grateful. You're here for a reason. I celebrate your commitment to claiming your youthful energy and stepping into this next phase of life, feeling vibrant, healthy, and powerful. I am so proud of you. Hit subscribe so you don't miss any wisdom on creating the most exceptional life on our terms. If this episode helped you in any way, please share it with a friend, spread the love, and together we rise. You can follow me on social media at Betty Murray PhD. And if you want a chance to share your story with our tribe or find out more about working with my team, you can sign up at chatwithbetty.com slash podcast. Again, that's chatwithbetty.com slash podcast. See you next week. Bye-bye.